The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 9, Avalanche, Going Out Strange, Part 1. Written by Cody Martin and Mercedes Lackey. The entire world had gone to hell, or close enough to it to not make much of a difference. Everything inside of John wanted him to drop what he and Sarah had been doing, and just search for whoever the hell Zack Marlowe was. But they couldn't. There was far too much that needed to be done, and not nearly enough time, or warm bodies, to do it. The world was reeling from the latest wave of Thulian attacks. With the fall of Metis, something had fundamentally changed, and not for the better. Instead of the pop-up attacks by virtual suicide squads of Thulians, which had become almost routine for everyday citizens, the current strikes were far more frequent. And effective. Before, the small-scale and usually short attacks seemed to be about inciting terror as much as the damage inflicted. The destruction, as horrible as it was, had always been localized. Now, the attacks were swift, brutal, and terribly catastrophic. The Thulians were striking seemingly at random, and more often than not several different locations at once. The targets were seldom guarded, or if they were, the Thulians made sure to mount a large enough force to completely overwhelm any defenders. The effect was that any places that were attacked were virtually wiped off the map, and the Thulians usually retreated before any retaliation could be exacted by security forces. The various governments had not reacted well to the constant barrage of attacks. In many countries, martial law, curfews, and resource rationing had been put back into effect. It was the only meaningful response that the world government seemed able to provide. Before, Thulian attacks were repelled, with at least some of the invaders being killed. Now, only the bodies of the innocent were left when an attack ended. People, if they hadn't been already, sure as hell were scared now. Even with that, the reaction from normal people surprised John. There wasn't widespread looting and rioting in most countries, like there had been after the first invasion. Communities had learned how to deal with that sort of thing early on, and had come together in the face of the latest atrocities instead of coming apart. As proud as it made John to see that, it just wasn't enough. We need to stop these bastards, not just clean up the mess after they're through. Unfortunately, that's all that John had been doing, at least for the last few weeks. He and Sarah were called up and sent out at the first sign of attacks within range of Atlanta, along with Echo, CCCP, and conventional military forces. Everyone was stretched thin, with most of the heavier assets, both metahuman and frontline security forces, being assigned to strategic targets. The Thulians had been avoiding anywhere that had a significant metahuman presence, 
though they hadn't been as reluctant to attack regular military units if they were small enough. The chain of command was hesitant to release any of those forces to pursue the Thulians, or come to the aid of places that were under attack, for fear that they were diversions to open up the more important targets. Naturally, centers of government were protected. But world leaders had been very careful to guard power distribution centers, main arteries of transportation, ports, and other less obvious targets that were still incredibly vital to keeping the world functioning. It made John sick to his stomach when he and Sarah had arrived at the first attack that they had responded to. They had been too late, and there were no survivors. They had been told that it used to be a county hospital. When they arrived, it was nothing more than a pile of smoking wreckage on blackened concrete. The second attack made John absolutely furious. It was the wood-to-electricity plant that he had helped defend, back before the attack on the North American Thulian HQ in the Superstition Mountain Range. With Echo's help, and that of a beleaguered pair of National Guard squads, they had prevented a pop-up attack from cutting off power to 27,000 homes. In a sick twist of irony, the plant was already scheduled to close down when it was destroyed. It was part of the reason why it had been undefended for the second attack. But since it had still been producing, it had been manned, and everyone in the plant had died. He still remembered the name of the soldier that had died in the first attack. Fieldhouse. Sergeant Fieldhouse. Another name to add to the list of those lost. John was tired of losing people, and he aimed to do something about it. The problem was, the Thulians had anticipated that. They knew the response times of defenders and made sure to keep their distance. By the time John and Sarah knew about an attack, even close ones, it was already too late. They were at Victoria's flat on guard duty when the latest call came in. John had been lounging on the couch, napping, while Sarah was flipping through a dog-eared copy of Super Summer, a metahuman romance by Victoria Nage, sitting in the well-used overstuffed chair next to him. A particularly loud klaxon sounded off for a full second before going quiet. John jumped and almost rolled off of the couch at the sound, jarred from sleep. Sarah, bemused, calmly set her book down and stood up. There is an alarm, she said, and vanished into the overwatch room. Hurry! Her voice came through the open door. John practically leapt off of the couch, running as soon as he was on his feet and pulling on his nanoweave jacket. Vic, what's the sitch? Vicky was sitting at her computer, her eyes flitting between the array of monitors, constantly going back to the one that was dedicated to eight ball. Her fingers never stopped moving, flying over the keyboard or switching to one of three mice. The entire workspace had scattered cups, crumpled up aluminum cans for meal replacement drinks, and other detritus that gave testament to how long Vicky had been awake and working. With all of the attacks, 
She was burning the candle at both ends, and in the middle trying to keep on top of it all, and keep everyone fed with up-to-date intelligence. Eight balls predicting, and there it goes. A map popped up on her main screen, showing the area just east and a little north of Atlanta. A red dot marked Riverside Military Academy, and a wedge of six of the little orange diamonds that Vicky used to designate death spheres descending on it. Shit. That's basically a private high school for troubled youth. John shook his head. It fits their pattern of going after soft targets. We knew they'd get nasty sooner rather than later. He leaned in, pushing aside a gamma bar wrapper to place his hand on the desk. What's the distance? Fifty-four miles. Damn it. That's just at the envelope of our operating range. John cussed again under his breath, leaning back from the station suddenly. Is there a quick reaction force in range? He already knew the answer, but forced himself to ask it out of habit. Based upon the latest pattern, no. They're going to hit the school and fade away before anyone arrives. They know our response time. Even if jets get diverted, which we don't have any that aren't down for maintenance or already putting out another fire, they wouldn't reach the target in time to do anything but harry the Thulians before the bastards retreat and melt away. Damn it! Vicky swore taking two fistfuls of her short hair and pulling. If only there was a way to put rockets on you two! John almost swore himself, but stopped short when goosebumps rose on his arms and the back of his neck. He had been watching all of the footage from the first invasion the last few weeks, trying to parse out the differences in the tactics that the Thulians were using now versus then, and how to combat them. It occurred to him that he'd been paying attention to the wrong part. He wasn't a master strategist. He was a trigger-puller at heart, a door-kicker, the man on the ground. He didn't need to be thinking about the larger picture. He needed to focus on what he knew, what he was strongest at, who he was strongest with, Sarah. He whirled to his left, putting his hands on Sarah's shoulders and turning her to face him. Darling, I need you to think back. To when the Kriegers first showed up and you and the siblings started kicking ass. How y'all got around? She nodded. But we moved by folding space. You and I cannot do that. Not even together. I don't... Her brows furrowed. Hmm. I'm not talking about how y'all showed up at places. I'm talking about how y'all got around once you were on site. We protected ourselves with a sheath of power, and it made us slippery. We could go as fast as we willed. John grinned lopsidedly. It's worth a shot, ain't it? Better than showing up late to the party. We must do something, she agreed. And we must do it now. John started towards Vicky's balcony, calling over his shoulder as he half-jogged. Vic, make sure the civvies are evac'd if you haven't already. We're trying something new. 
The couple stood shoulder to shoulder on the balcony railing. It was their customary launching and landing spot for Vicky's flat. John looked over to Sarah, shrugging. Only one way to find out if this is going to work, he said. With a thought, his boots became sheathed in celestial fire. He let the fire build for a moment, directing it downwards, and then he lifted off from the balcony. After a few scorched curtains and singed carpets, John had learned to take off gently and get into the air before turning on the afterburners. Meanwhile, Vicky had put up metal shutters instead of curtains on that window. It occurred to John that she must have an unusually tolerant landlord. Sarah merely gathered herself and leapt onto the wind, snapping her wings wide at the top of her arc and joining him with a pair of powerful wingbeats. All right, darling. This is my first time with this sort of thing. You'll have to walk me through it. He could have used the Overwatch system to talk with her, even over the screaming wind, but for non-mission critical communication, it was faster and easier for him to speak with her over their connection. It just had more nuance than regular speech did. And this time it would probably not have been possible to verbally describe what it was she wanted him to do. She had to show him, but also had to allow him to experience how the process felt. It was one part instinct, one part visceral, and one part verbal. John had realized some time ago that this was more like how the siblings themselves communicated with their song, though the way they spoke mind to mind, soul to soul, was still unique to Sarah and himself. Sarah began to explain how it was done, and it felt like remembering and learning at the same time. Something he was experiencing for the first time and coming back to like an old hand. There was memory, not John's, but Sarah's. His ability to fly with the fire was but a small part of it that he had discovered on his own, through desperation and his love for Sarah, to save her when she had been kidnapped. This was an expansion of that power. The realization of it. It happened suddenly. One moment, John was abreast with Sarah, concentrating on what she was helping him to learn. He focused the energy in front of himself, and then let it flow over him like magma in a perfect sheath that covered him from head to toe. Then he fed more celestial energy into the sheath, and he rocketed up and away, accelerating like something launched out of the cape. Within moments, he had left Sarah behind. Holy shit! He didn't feel the wind on his face anymore. Normally it would have pulled the skin back from his skull and pressed the goggles deep into his eye sockets, but now it was non-existent. He felt a moment of vertigo and nausea as he watched the countryside below streak by almost at a blur. He wasn't very high, only about a thousand feet off the ground, so everything was passing very quickly. Do not falter, and do not wait for me, beloved. Go, go, go! John didn't hesitate, 
he immediately poured more energy into the fires. The sheath of celestial fire around him shimmered for a moment, and he realized that he had broken the sound barrier as a vapor cloud formed and was quickly left in his wake. There was an upper limit to how fast he could go. Even with the celestial energy, he was only a metahuman and wasn't made of the sterner stuff that the siblings were. Still, he pushed as far as he could, willing himself to go faster. I wouldn't want to be anyone with windows down there. It took John's HUD a couple of seconds to recalibrate to the speed he was traveling at. Vicky got it first. Holy freaking shit, Johnny! That's what I said, he responded. You're... Congrats, you just broke the sound barrier. We'll be paying for windows. Time for trophies and lawsuits later. ETA for the attack site? About three minutes. Holy shit. Again. He paused for a moment. Sarah's trailing behind me by a good bit. I'm solo on this. Damn it. I'll try and spot for you. What's the situation on the civvies? Basement. No time for them to go anywhere else. I've got verbal confirmation that no one's missing anyway, because... kids. Standard protocol. Spot them out for me. Going to try to put myself between them and the spheres. Any sightings of ground armor? Wolves? Troopers? I think this is strictly a blitzkrieg op. All air. Good. Not my specialty, though. He really wished Sarah was there with him. Everything had happened so fast, he hadn't had the time to figure out how to bring her along with him. That was how their connection worked. Information dump, instantly shared and understood. Normally it was a blessing, but he desperately wanted her by his side right now. Something felt off. It is the battle sense. We are too far apart. You must dance alone, beloved. And memories of Sarah's dance above a small Georgia town flooded through him. She danced, and the first ship that she danced with came at her with newly hardened tentacles reaching with inhuman speed and energy cannons seeking to lock onto her. She landed. A cascade of fire waterfalled from her down the sides of the ship a white-hot waterfall that fused the portals for the weapon shut and blinded a ship, a torrent of plasma that was so hot and fierce that it did so and dissipated without cooking the crew inside. Her fire wings buffeted the next ship, destroying the sensors an instant after blinding the crew. There wasn't enough time. John was already over the campus. Everything on the western half of the grounds had been leveled, completely. There were two lines of death spheres. The first used mechanical tentacles and energy cannons to rip apart and raise buildings. The second line bathed the ruins in showers of thermite to make sure that any survivors were dead. Through his HUD overlay, he saw that the students and faculty had moved to the easternmost buildings, fleeing the death spheres. There were basements on that side, some of them converted into civil defense shelters, 
others just storage rooms or engineering rooms for the HVAC systems. The advancing line of Thulians had almost reached the buildings where the civilians were hiding. John did the only thing he could think to do. He flew straight down, interposing himself in front of the lead death sphere, just as Sarah had, back then. The speeds he flew at were dizzying, but his enhancements, already ramped up, helped his reaction time. That, combined with the energy sheath, protected him from the sudden deceleration and prevented him from slamming into the ground. He hovered there for a moment, appraising the attackers. The two lines of Tholians came to a halt in the air, brought up short. They clearly hadn't been expecting metahuman resistance. I wonder if these bastards know about me and Sarah. Did they take footage of their own at Ultima Thule? Were they there? A sudden, hateful glee rose in his chest. Are they pissing themselves right now? These sons of bitches who would attack children? After another moment of hesitation, the muzzles for the energy cannons on the front line of death spheres swung toward John. He tried to reach through the futures and realized with sickening clarity that he couldn't. Sarah was still too far away. He was back to his own powers now, his enhancements and the celestial fire, without the benefit of being able to predict where the enemy would strike. Dance, beloved, dance! Watch your HUD, JM. Eight balls sending you predictive trajectories. Holographic lines sprung into vision, emitting from the energy cannons of the death spheres. John did a flip in midair, diving and coming back up in a flash of fire too fast for the human eye to track, as dozens of actinic energy beams screamed through the air. Vicky's overwatch system and his reaction speed had saved him from being torn to bits, obliterated in the sky. Sarah was still miles away, flying as fast as she could to reach him and help him. John felt something building inside, however. He had been watching the Thulians decimate people he was supposed to protect for the last few weeks, watching them go unopposed, dancing just out of range of any meaningful response to their terror attacks. He resented them, despised them for being unwilling to stay for a stand-up fight. That resentment built itself into anger, and then into rage, incredulousness. How dare they not face him? That feeling morphed into something else. An overwhelming sense of righteous retribution. John didn't even register when the fire built up around his hands, then his arms, and finally his entire upper body. He tensed, his brow furrowing as he watched the energy cannons on the death spheres moving to track him again. Then he frowned and whispered once, Stop. The spheres moved forward, and he said, Die. It wasn't a lance of fire, or a wave of plasma. It started as a tiny ball of celestial energy, roiling fire, that grew, and grew, and grew. The power was cataclysmic, 
and all-encompassing. If John hadn't controlled it, it would have been like a nuclear explosion, utterly devastating and all-destroying. But control it he did. He moved the energy, the fire, out from himself, feeding it with his anger. The spear completely engulfed both lines of Thulian warships, vaporizing them almost instantly. John felt the life forces inside of the ships being snuffed out as the crest of the spear reached the ships, and felt a surge of satisfaction with each death, each murderer being erased from this world. The power was right there, if only he would take it. He could burn all of them, take control, and keep anything like this from ever happening again. It would be absolute, and no one would be able to stand against that sort of power. Then there was a twinge in John's chest. He felt like he was on the cusp of something, something momentous. He had to ramp down. Otherwise he would let the sphere grow, his own energy pouring into it until there was nothing left. He couldn't just release it either. He had effectively created a small sun on the surface of the earth. All of its energy, save for an extremely small fraction of its luminosity, contained. It obliterated whatever it touched, but nothing that it didn't contact. He focused his will forcing the energy to coalesce again, to come back to him. It shrank and reabsorbed into his outstretched hands. He had to fight hard to keep drawing the energy into himself. It threatened to explode again with every beat of his heart. It was all too much. As soon as he had absorbed the last of the deadly celestial sun that he had created— John felt his eyes begin to roll back in his head, and darkness cloud his vision. He was falling unconscious, and falling from the sky. He was going to die, smashed into the ground that he had foolishly thought he could escape. I think not. Something caught him in mid-air, a small jolt, smaller than he would have thought then the buffeting of immense wings beating the air frantically, until he was awash in cool movement. You will not fall, beloved. Not while I am here to catch you. There was a moment, as he hovered between darkness and awareness, that power surged into him, scorching him. Just the briefest of nanoseconds that forced a gasp into lungs that had forgotten how to work. He felt, rather than saw or heard, the touchdown on the earth, and the scorching sensation turned to cool and healing, and life flowed back into him, and something else too. Something he couldn't have put a name to unless... Could emotions have an energy? Of course they can. Open your eyes, beloved. You must see what you have wrought, some for ill, but mostly for good. John opened his eyes, cautiously at first. Sarah had placed John on the ground, cradling his head and shoulders. He smelled burnt ozone. The first thing he saw looked like snow. It took him a moment to realize that it was ash, 
falling from the sky in a constant rain. He brushed a covering of it from his face, shaking his head wearily. He still felt out of it, not entirely himself from the expenditure. Then he looked around. His HUD told him that all of the civilians were safe. Whatever else he had done, he had limited the destruction to spare them. At least he had had enough sense to do that. But, for the rest of the campus, the devastation was... complete. A bowl of blackened, smoking Georgia clay was all that was left of several thousand feet of the school's campus. The outer crust had been vitrified, and the cracks the outer layer made as it cooled sounded like distant thunder or gunshots. Just outside of the zone of destruction, the trees and even the grass were utterly unharmed. John was simultaneously awed and sickened by the sheer power he had brought to bear against the Thulians. "'You very nearly burned yourself out, beloved,' Sarah chided. He nodded, swallowing back bile. "'I felt it. I almost lost it, too. "'It took damn near all of me to reel it all back in.' Sweet suffering Christ, said Vicky. How the hell did you manage that? I almost didn't, Vic. John noticed that he was shaking. He had felt the effects of an adrenaline dump before, and this wasn't that. This was unmitigated fear. And strangely, euphoria. Because it had been so easy. What could he do? And what would he do? This is why you have me, Sarah replied calmly. You have all the power that I once had. In fact, I believe I had more, though never as a mortal. She knelt down next to him and cupped his face in both her hands. He shook even more fiercely, and had to force himself to meet her eyes. You will never exceed your moral limits. I know this. Think on yourself. You exceeded those limits only once in all your life, and having done so, you have made it the deepest part of yourself never to do so again never to shed innocent blood. Had you not done this, nor you nor I would be here now, today, as we are. I should never have saved you, nor wish to. You would never have come to Atlanta, nor wish to. It is one strong, unbroken strand of the past that brings us to this moment. John felt his shoulders heave, fighting back a sob. He couldn't break away from Sarah's gaze. Since she had become corporeal, human in oh so many wonderful and mundane ways, her once molten gold eyes had turned to the deepest blue. Except when he and she fought together, 
Then her eyes became fiery and gold again. Now, as they looked into his, they were halfway, deep blue under a veil of celestial gold. As she found her old self through him, he found his better self through her. Darling, it was so easy. I... Seductive. She nodded with understanding and took his hands in hers. Yes, he cried, almost pleading. Everything that I could do with that power. Thrown everything I believed away and just... Just done things. And yet you did not. Without even thinking about it, as if it were instinct, the deepest part of you reined it back in. She nodded at the undamaged part of the campus, the part where the students and teachers were now emerging to see what he had wrought. You kept them safe. Even while the power sang in your veins, you kept them safe, to your own cost. One eyebrow rose, and her mouth curved in a half-smile. You would have done better, however, had I been here to help you with control. But perhaps they can make a pond. John fell into an embrace with Sarah, holding her tightly. Tarlin, those were the worst two minutes of my life. I don't want to be that far from you ever again. And we'll figure out how to get both of us up to speed, as it were. He pulled away from her, taking her by the shoulders for a moment. This is a game-changer. You know that, right? If we can get to hot spots before the Thulians can withdraw, or arrive before they even show up. And we will learn to do this. But now, there must be rest. The next few days turned out to be... interesting. After returning to Atlanta, John and Sarah had immediately been recalled to CCCP HQ. Several of the comrades were gathered on the rooftop to welcome them and escort them to the briefing room. Thea, as pale as usual but definitely looking like she hadn't been sleeping much, probably due to round-the-clock shifts, filled the couple in on what had happened during their flight back. First, there was the mild rebuke from the FAA for breaking the sound barrier and many windows. So far, there hadn't been any news reports that had featured the couple as the cause of the destruction at the Academy's campus, since all of the survivors had been hunkered down in the civil defense shelters and basements. There hadn't been the usual cell phone footage of the battle. Spin Doctor had been working overtime to suppress reports that the couple had even been there, explaining away the monumental destruction as an experimental Thulian suicide switch that had been activated when they were met with force. What that force was had been intentionally left unsaid as well. Of course, that was only what the public was told. Even Spin Doctor couldn't keep the authorities out of the loop. The military expressed concerns, as did the representatives of the U.S. and other worldwide governments. 
Enough people in the right places had put two and two together about John and Sarah to make the jump that they had been at the campus. Most of them went along the lines of demanding access to the resources. John did not enjoy being referred to in such a way. And a full briefing on the capabilities that the couple possessed. Several nations, in addition to wanting access to John and Sarah, wanted to know what fail-safes were in place. The mountain hadn't left their memories, and another pair of high-op-level metahumans only brought those fears back to the surface. So far, the Commissar had been stonewalling them all with the couple's diplomatic immunity through the CCCP, but even she couldn't withstand the pressure indefinitely. Especially from Russia. And that is where things being stand, Tovarici, Thea told them. This is classic Western tactic. It is obvious that they can big do nothing about you. It is obvious that they cannot big do without you. You are being too useful a weapon. Yet they must be making posture. She shrugged. How useful a weapon you are being is obvious. Attacks are down almost to pre-meters attack level in this area, and stopped for some distance around Atlanta. But, Johnny, cannot being expect this to last. You must know this. No, I don't figure it will, Thea. The Thulians are taking a breather, figuring things out. They weren't counting on Sarah and me to be able to reach them as fast as we just did. If I were a betting man, I'd wager they were going to try to feel out our new range, our new response time. He ran a hand through his hair, sighed, and looked at Sarah. Well, things are going to get a lot more interesting in the near future, darling. Sarah nodded silently. They had arrived at the door to the briefing room. Inside, John could hear what sounded like intense discussion. Thea held up a hand, stopping the couple from entering. Watch carefully, Johnny. Do not being promised too much. Commissar has hungry look in eyes. She is being desperate. Then she nodded. John took a deep breath, met Sarah's eyes, and then knocked on the door. Enter! John pushed the door open. Natalia and Bella were seated next to each other at one end of the long and battered table that was at the front of the briefing room. Unter was standing behind them, arms crossed in front of his chest. He nodded curtly to John once before switching his gaze to Sarah. The table was scattered with maps, reports, crumpled packs of Nat's favorite cigarettes, empty cups of coffee and tea, and several communication devices. He realized from the looks that both Bella and Natalia fastened on them that it was not just the commissar who was desperate and hungry. So was the head of Echo. Everyone had been stretched thin the last few weeks, but none more so than Echo. Every meta was activated and on deck, even the lowliest op-1s and support ops. If someone had a heartbeat and the ability to hold a weapon, they were on call. Bella was the first to speak. So, was that a one-shot, or can you do it again? 
she asked. John shrugged. Which part? Turning into a one-man ICBM or damn near creating the sun on the surface of the earth? Yes, said Bella, at the same time that the commissar said, Da, the both. The next three hours were filled with arguments, pleading, quite a bit of shouting, and probably too much caffeine. The commissar and Bella both wanted John and Sarah to become the go-to solution for an attack. Show up before the Thulians could leave, blast the hell out of them, and then move on to the next attack. John understood where they were coming from. An effective counter to the just-out-of-reach attacks was needed. Some countries had been using the Echo-developed high-thermite missiles. Others were trying to be everywhere at once with their security forces. Thankfully, no one had had the bright idea to try to use tactical nukes. All of the bigwigs agreed that the last thing they needed was to trade a few dead Thulians for irradiated land. It all amounted to the same. More people getting hurt. Civilians and much-needed soldiers. And the Thulians adapting and changing their operational range. After Ultima Thule... It had taken nearly everything that Bella and Natalia collectively had to keep the governments of the world from trying to snatch up John and Sarah. They used up the rest of that capital to protect the medicine refugees from getting flung to the four corners of the planet, doing heaven knew what for individual governments. Now, the governments were hungry for John and Sarah again. The logic that Bella and Natalia offered was that if they utilized the couple, they could persuade all of the governments to liaison with them. They pitched it as a way for John and Sarah to stay relatively independent, but the implied argument wasn't hard to see. Work for us, or have them fight over you and have to work for them in the end. There didn't seem to be a choice. Or, actually, there was a choice, but it left the two of them out there, unsupported, on their own. They could strike out on their own and continue the fight on their own terms. Granted, Vicky could help them with Overwatch, but she couldn't feed them, house them, clothe them. At least, not easily. They would have to be on the run from the world while at the same time defending the world from the Thulians. A lose-lose situation. We're only metahuman, Sarah said finally. We need to rest, eat, sleep. We cannot be everywhere. We cannot mystically transport ourselves across the globe in a blink. Not even the siblings in the invasion could do that indefinitely. And we are much less than the siblings. Sarah's right. As much as folks want us to be, we're not the Seraphim. Well, for the most part. John looked over at Sarah. She shrugged. Overextend us, and you got nothing. Waste us on something small, and when the big hit comes, we're useless. Of all things, he did not want them to know just how close he had come to losing control in that fight. Not of the actual power, like before, but of himself and what he could do with it. 
and if he and Sarah were overused, tired. He wondered if his self-control would break down in the heat of the moment, and if he wouldn't want to ramp down. Surprisingly, Unter spoke up for John and Sarah. The overuse of strategic assets, while tempting, is unwise, Commissar. To expose the pair overly would invite a response from the enemy. Allow them to study them, and eventually anticipate their movements. Better to hold in reserve for proper use, keep enemy guessing. Also, possibility that they could be killed. He looked to John, tilting his head to the side. As your wife said, you are being only metahuman. Sarah bowed her head to him a little. That, too, is a consideration. If you come to rely too much on us, and we are removed. After a glance at Untermensch, Natalia narrowed her eyes, turning her head to look at John. Is unexpected, Murdoch, for you to be advising caution. Given your treatment of earls and willingness to persecute targets in the past. Her English is getting better, that's for sure. Still the same stone-cold bitch when she wants to be, though. You can take the Russian out of Russia, but... John met her gaze and replied evenly. Well, things change, Commissar. That much ought to be plain. We can't expect to keep doing things the same way and have it work out. Hmph, Natalia said. Repetition is fatal. If you repeat, the enemy can predict you. Better to be unpredictable. Unexpected wisdom from you, Murdoch. She raised an eyebrow. So, in order to deploy you unpredictably, we are needing to know your limits. What are your limits? At the moment, however fast Sarah can get to an attack site, he said without hesitating. Without her there, I can't predict the fight, and I run out of steam too fast. It was only a lie by omission, but he still felt dirty saying it. He didn't like playing things close to the vest when dealing with people that were his comrades. I can get to the fights, but there's a better chance of me getting taken out unless she's there with me. We can only pull off what we did in Ultima Thule if we're together. And that ought to be something we don't let the Thulians know. Unacceptable, the commissar declared. Why can you not carry her? That way you can both be at top speed. Uh, commissar, Bella interjected. Remember, they're just flesh and blood, not a missile and a payload. Natalia huffed then shook her head while pinching the bridge of her nose. Da, da, annoying fact of life. Well, you must be finding way. Easier said than done, Commissar. We haven't tried anything like that. And we don't know if this new ability works like that. Well, not yet, he added. Then what are you waiting for? Natalia demanded. Go, find out. 
Is that a dismissal, Commissar? Sarah asked mildly. Nat snorted. Cannot make plans without data. Bring me data, she demanded, and made a shooing motion with her hands. John was not about to linger and give her another chance to think of something else to interrogate them about. He got up, held his hand out to Sarah, who took it and did the same. Roger, Commissar. We'll see what we can do. And with that, they made a hasty retreat. You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Narration and production by Veronica Jaguer at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance by Laura Nicole at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 license. For previous episodes, check out secretworldchronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the fantastic people at Bayon Books. Find fellow SWC fans on the Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And, as always, thank you for listening.